0: listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. So the reading today in the gospel is the story of the prodigal son, which is in Luke 15. So if you want to either turn there or get there on your phone or or follow along this is just to set the context a little bit jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners and some pharisees and scribes criticizing for it and they they wonder why a holy man a prophet would associate with people like this and In response to their criticism, Jesus tells a series of parables. And the first one is a parable about a shepherd who loses a sheep and leaves the 99, goes and finds the sheep and brings it home. And then he tells a story about a a woman who loses a coin. She has 10 coins, she loses one of them, and she searches her house top to bottom until she finds the coin. And then he tells the story we're about to read, which is a story of a man and his two sons. And one of the things that's striking about this story that you will come back to is the father doesn't search in the way that the shepherd searched and the woman searched. And in this case, both sons are lost, not just one. So it's a slightly different end to this string of parables than you would expect. But with, with that in mind, let's read 15, Luke 15, 11. There was a man who had two sons, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. So as you've probably heard before, this is, this is scandalous and offensive, that the son asks for his inheritance before his father dies. And the father grants it. The father gives the, the inheritance to the son, the younger and the older. And then the younger takes, after a few days, takes his share of the inheritance and goes to a far country. And which is almost certainly a reference to a Gentile city, right? So he leaves not only home, but he leaves his tradition. And he goes to the forbidden place. He goes, he crosses the line and goes to this far country, and there he wastes what he has. Right, on, and all the text says is that he wasted it with dissolute living. He was, he was being foolish. But as soon as that happened, when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields, to feed the pigs. So here again is a sign of the fact that he's outside the bounds of of his home and, and of his tradition because he is with a farmer who's caring for pigs and now he's feeding the pigs. And he's fallen far from this privileged position with his father and wasted all of his substance and now ends up feeding pigs. And he's even willing to eat the pigs' feed, the text says. And he, and he wants to. He would have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Right? So he's, he's in this terrible place. And notice, he's in this terrible place not just because he was wasteful, but because he's unfortunate. Right? So he's wasteful, and as soon as he's wasted everything, this severe famine sweeps through the land. So the text seems to suggest that this is not all this kid's fault, right? The kid made a foolish choice. He was hateful in asking for his inheritance, and then he foolishly wasted that inheritance. But he's unfortunate in that he wasted his inheritance right at the time that a famine was coming. And it's the famine that drives him to these extremes. And it drives him to the extreme of feeding the pigs and even eating with the pigs. No one gives him anything, the text says. And at that point, he came to himself. And he says this, meaning he kind of came aware. He had a moment, an aha moment, a realization. And he says this to himself. Father, I have sinned against heaven. Oh, no, back up for just a moment. He came to himself. He said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. What's striking about this text is that the son knows his father well enough to know that his father will receive him. He has no doubt that when he gets home, the father will let him in, but he assumes the father will only receive him as a servant. This is, I think, parallel to how many of us imagine God to be. We, we have so much shame and guilt for what we've done wrong or are doing wrong that we might believe that God would accept us back, but we can't believe that he would accept us back without condition. That if, we, if we're going to come home, yes, he will let us come home, but we must come home as a servant. Treat me like one of your hired hands. And that's exactly what the servant does. I want you to notice I mean, exactly what the son does. He's, he's now imagined himself to be unworthy of sonship. He can only be a servant. And he's so desperate for food, he's willing to be a servant in his father's house. And so he, he comes home. He set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. So the father's response is in no way what the son expected. The son knew what he had done. Now he's had the realization that what he had done was hateful. What he had done was an embarrassment to the family name. And he knows that he's wasted it all. And he's in this horrific situation now. So he comes home. He expects the father to receive him as a servant. Instead, the father has compassion, runs to him, throws his arms around him, kisses him. Then the son says to him exactly what he had been telling himself. He would say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And notice the father doesn't even respond. He doesn't even correct the son. He doesn't say, no, that's not who you are to me. He simply turns to his servants, his slaves, and says, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a, finger, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. But this this father is both like and unlike God. And I'm gonna come back to this theme again and again today. He's unlike God in that God does not just let us go into the far country and leave us there until we come to ourselves. God comes to the far country to get us. And for a long time, I, I wrestled with this text precisely because I didn't understand why the father would let the son go and not pursue him. Because that, I think, is the nature of our God. He's a God who pursues us. We go to the far country, he comes to the far country with us. And yet, I do think there's a way in which the father, this father is like God in terms of how he receives the son home. That the son comes home with guilt and shame, unsure that he can be a son again, sure that he can't be a son again, and the father instead embraces him and kisses him and says, this son of mine has come home. This son of mine, right? Insists. Not only to the, to the boy, but to everyone who's there. This is my son. And I'm, I'm not ashamed of him, even though he's done shameful things. Even though he's wasted all that I gave him. Even though he's brought shame on our name. I'm not ashamed of him. He's welcome here. And let's rejoice. Let's celebrate. This is, I think, crucial in the Gospel of John when Jesus does the the first sign that Jesus does to show his glory, to show who he is, is to turn water to wine. And I don't think that that's just happenstance or accidental. I think it's because God's glory is intimately bound up with the party he wants to throw for us, the celebration he wants to have for us. I mean, in in the Revelation, the apocalypse, at the end end of the New Testament, the image that we have for what God is going to do at the end of everything is a wedding feast, that what we're moving toward and living toward at the end of history is a party in which God calls us into the celebration, calls us right out of our shame, directly into celebration. He doesn't say to the son, you get a probationary period, come home, live here for a year and then we'll party, or give me a month to see whether or not you're serious and sincere and then we'll party. He comes right off the street, so to speak, right into the house, they kill the fatted calf, they pour the non-alcoholic wine and they start the party, right? And Jesus did that too. He turned the, the water into non-alcoholic wine just so we're all clear. And I, I think there's a lot to learn here about how we are to think about our God, that he, he welcomes us, he's not ashamed of us even when we've done shameful things, and he wants to celebrate us. There's the passage in Zechariah that I love. I think it's Zechariah. or Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets, that talks about God singing over us with dancing. God rejoices in us. And I, I don't think it's possible for us to take seriously enough how much delight God takes in us. I mean, Jesus compares it to a father and his children. and He says, if you being evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more will God give good things to us, right? So there's this in this way, the father is very much like God, in which he wants to welcome us, and wants to party. But this parable is really not about the prodigal, or about the father. It's about the other son. It's about the elder son. Now, remember, I told you the context is Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's eating with Jews who've brought shame on their families, and are living in open rebellion against the law. And Jesus is associating himself with these people, celebrating with them, having non-alcoholic wine with them. And it's a scandal. And in response to the scandal, Jesus tells this story about a son who's brought shame on his father's house and immediately the father celebrates. Now, you know what the neighbors were saying, right? You've, you've said this. I've said this about other people. When we see a kid who's bringing embarrassment on his family's house, on a family name, and then we see those parents indulge that kid again, we say things like, well, of course the kid. He's spoiled. No wonder he wastes everything. Look at how the father lavishes him. This is what the neighbors were saying about this father and this kid. Of course this kid went to the far country. Of course this, because the father gave him the inheritance when he asked for it. The father should have told him no in the beginning, but the father gave him the inheritance when he shouldn't have given it to him, let him go to the far country, and then comes home, and instead of disciplining him and correcting him and dressing him down in public, he throws a party for him. This is exactly what they're saying about Jesus. What is Jesus doing with these people? Doesn't he know if he associates with ungodly people? He's essentially affirming it. If he goes to that wedding or if he bakes that cake or if he has that conversation with these people, he's essentially affirming it. And it's no scandalous, no more scandalous then than it is now and no more scandalous now than it was then. When you associate with people who are living in open rebellion, you're going to be called on the carpet by people who think of themselves as righteous. It's going to happen, no matter who you are, no matter what, you, what you're doing. And Jesus' response is to tell this story, which is really, as I said, not about the prodigal, but about the elder son. And I want you to see the elder son's response. Now, the elder son was in the field. I think, first of all, just think about how different it is. One son goes to the Gentile city, and the other son stays home and works. Now, this is a little oversimplified, maybe a lot oversimplified, but I think most of us fall into one or the other category. We're either law-keeping people or we're law-breaking people. We're people that like to get in trouble because we think that's kind of fun, or we're people that do not like trouble, and we don't like people who like trouble. And the fact that all of us are here on a Sunday morning is a pretty good indication. Most of us are in the law-keeping group, not the law-breaking group, because the law-breaking people are all asleep right now. (laughs) Right? They were up way too late last night with their non-alcoholic wine, and now now they're sleeping in, right? So we're, we're most of us, I'm going to guess, are in that category. And there's something about law-keeping people that is tied to work, tied to doing what needs doing. And this elder son is in the field. The, the younger son, I mean, both of them, remember, both of them received their inheritance. They both have all that they need now to live the kind of life they want to live. The younger son takes a couple of days and says, I mean, he, wanted, he didn't want it to appear... He didn't want to appear too eager. He waited a few days, and then he goes to the city. But the elder son just goes back to work, and he's doing his work. He's in the field, and then he he comes and approaches the house, and he hears music and dancing. And notice his response. He hears music and dancing, and he doesn't run into it. He doesn't think, oh, a party. He's skeptical and he takes a step back and he calls one of the servants over and says, what's going on here? There's something about morally serious people, people that are good, that when they hear fun, their response is, something's not right here. (laughs) Something's going wrong, right? what's, What's happening here? So he calls the servant over, what's happening? And the slave responds, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Then the elder son became angry and refused to go in. I think this is one of the ways in which our hearts are judged. What makes us us angry? And especially, what good thing happening to another person makes us angry? When we see someone else receiving good, Blessing, honor. What is it that makes us angry about their prosperity, about their blessing? In this case, the elder son, as he's about to say to the father, his his case is pretty straightforward. This son is an embarrassment to us, and now you're throwing him a party, and I've been a good son all along, and you've done nothing like that for me. Listen to what he says. So he refuses to go in. And apparently the servant who had been talking to him went into the father and said, hey, your elder son is here, but he won't come in. And the father comes out. The father comes out to to plead with the elder son. But he answered his father this way. Listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you. Now think about how stunning this is. You've got two sons. One of them goes into the far country, wastes everything he has living foolishly, unfortunately is caught up in a famine and his life is reduced to, to just shameful circumstances. And when he's coming home, what does he say? I can't be a son anymore, all I can be is a slave. And then you have an elder son who was mature and responsible, church-going person. Didn't cuss, didn't drink, didn't watch R-rated movies other than Mel Gibson's Passion. Like, is, <laughs> a very responsible person, and he still thinks of himself like a slave. I worked all of these years like a slave for you. Because there's something about the way that sin works in us, whether it works in us as a law-keeping person or a law-breaking person, whether we, are like, whether we let sin carry us out into the far country or we let sin carry us out into the field, whether we let sin lead to us living wild, immature, irresponsible lives, or we let sin lead us to becoming self-righteous, very self-controlled, controlling people. Either way, what underlies that is the belief that we're slaves and not sons, that we don't really relate to the Father like sons and daughters. Really, this is a slave relationship. I've worked all of these years like a slave for you. That's the problem. If we think about our life with God as a life of slaving for God. We've already misunderstood everything. If we think of the ministry that we give, whether it's on staff at a church or at a university or in a, in, a, in a ministry, a parachurch ministry, whatever it is that we do, if we think of our work for God as slaving for God, we've already misunderstood everything that matters. And the elder son is more lost than the prodigal was. This is about two lost sons, but the elder son is the one that's really lost because he was close to the father's house but didn't know anything about the father's heart. He was right there, right there in the field, but he had no sense at all of the real character of his father. And those of us who are closest to God in proximity, those of us who are in church on Sunday morning, those of us who go to bed at a decent hour on Saturday night, those of us who live good moral lives... Who only break out the non-alcoholic wine around Christmas and Thanksgiving, whatever. I I won't make any more jokes about that. (laughs) Those of us who are good law-keeping people, we're the ones most at risk. This is exactly what Jesus says over and over and over again in his ministry. The prostitutes and the tax collectors are gonna go into the kingdom of God before you do. Because there's something about people who people whose lives are broken and empty they're ready to receive grace. But it's people like you and me, people who are working hard to be good upstanding people who can't stand that we can't actually get control of our lives. And so when grace and mercy is offered to us or offered to others, it's offensive. It doesn't seem right. You know, Jesus tells the parable about the man who hires workers at every hour of the day. And then at the end of the day, you remember what he does? He pays them all the same wage. Now, I'm one of those people that would show up at the end of the day, so that's a great parable for me. But a lot of you are the people who would show up early, maybe show up earlier than the the owner did, right? You're already ready to go to work before he shows up to hire anyone. And so for you to hear a story that people who worked one-tenth, one-twelfth the amount of time that you worked get the same pay, there's something in us that says, no, that can't be right. These are the stories Jesus tells over and over again because God's ways. Of mercy are not what we would expect and sometimes not what we want so he says I've worked like a slave for you all these years I have never disobeyed your command yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends but when this son of yours did you hear what he said not my brother this son of yours he disowns him He won't talk about him as his own brother. This son of yours comes home who has devoured your property with prostitutes. No, he didn't. The text did not in any way suggest that he wasted his money on prostitutes. It just said he lived foolishly. I think this is because this is what the elder son wanted to do with his money and didn't do it. This is what he would have done if he had had the courage to go to the far country. But he didn't. And so he projects that onto the younger son. He wasted your substance, your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And the story ends. And it ends as a cliffhanger. We don't know what is going to happen next. We don't know how the elder son is going to respond. What we do know clearly is that the father wants to insist to the elder son, you're my son and he's my son. And this, I think, is the heart of God and I think at the heart of what God is doing in the world, is God is wanting us to hear him say, you're mine and they are mine. And it's easy to hear the first sometimes. Not always, but sometimes it's easy to hear the first. It's hard to hear the last. You are mine and they are mine. In Romans nine to 11, Paul lays out this, the whole story of history as a story about two sons. He says, talking about God's way in the world, he says, he references the the passage that says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And Paul essentially asks, how can this be just? How can it be just that God loves Jacob, the younger son, and hates Esau, the older son? And then Paul takes the next three chapters to explain what God is doing when he says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And this is the gist of it. If we had four or five hours, I would go through it closely, but we don't. So this is is the gist of it. God works with the rejected ones for the sake of those who were chosen. So you can put it like this. The elect are elected for the sake of the non-elect. But the elect never respond well to God. So God turns from those who were chosen, but disobedient, to those who were not chosen, but are open to the work of God. So Jacob have I loved. He's, he's my chosen one. But Jacob is not what he should be. But the whole reason God works with Jacob is so that he can move Esau to repentance. The example, one of the examples Paul gives is a Pharaoh that God is merciful to Israel and hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why? Not because he doesn't care about Pharaoh, but because he's going to use Pharaoh's hardness to deliver Egypt, deliver Israel from Egypt. But he delivers Israel from Egypt precisely to break Pharaoh's hardened heart so that everything God does for anyone, he does for everyone. Everything God is doing for you, he's doing for you because he cares about someone else beside you. And everything the Father is doing for me, he's doing because of me, yes, but not just me, but all of these other people around me that God is also claiming as his own. And so Paul wraps up the argument eventually, this Jacob and Esau argument in Romans 11, by saying that God has chosen Israel But Israel doesn't respond, so God turns to the Gentiles who aren't even seeking them and blesses the Gentiles. But he does this so that Israel will be provoked to jealousy and will repent, so that Israel will come in too. So whatever God's doing for the Gentiles, he's doing it because he has the Jews in mind. Whatever God's doing with the Jews, he does because he has the Gentiles in mind. Whatever he does with Jacob, he does because he loves Esau. Whatever he does with Esau, he does because he loves Jacob. Whatever he does with the younger son, he does because he loves the older son. And then Paul concludes his argument this way. So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. A hardening is a reference back to the Pharaoh story. At one time, God hardened Pharaoh so that Israel would be delivered. Now he's hardened Israel so the Gentiles will be delivered. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, out of Zion will come the Deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as enemies of God for your sake. Think about that line. They are enemies of God for your sake. Even God's enemies, God loves, and God lets them be His enemies for your good. They are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Everything God is doing in the world He's doing for the sake of every and everything. I mean, this, this means that if you freely respond to God, if, if your free response to God is acceptance and, and delight and you respond in obedience, then God will draw you into care for those who are in rebellion. But if you rebel against God, if you fight God, then God will use your rebellion and use your, your status as his enemy just to serve others. There's nothing you can do to keep God from being gracious. You're not going to outwit God. No matter what you do, he's going to turn what you're doing to the good of others as well as your good. And that's why Paul ends with this hymn. <clears throat> oh, the depth and riches, depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Now this is what's happening on the big big scale, on the largest scale possible. Everything that's happening in the world, God is turning it to the good of everyone. Whatever we do, God takes what we do. It's our free response, but God takes what we do and turns it to our good and the good of others. That's what's happening in the story of these two sons. And the reason I think the father doesn't go to the far country to claim the son in this story, is that he, needs, he knows he needs to get the elder son's attention. There's a striking detail in this story that the father doesn't invite the elder son to the party. Everyone else is in the party except for the slave that the elder son calls over, but the elder son just happens to come home. Now, that could be the father's oversight. That could be the father forgetting, but I think it's more likely the father knows what's about to happen. And he knows what his son's heart is like. And he knows that the only thing that's going to break this son free from his self-righteousness is to see that this son is his brother too. That the only hope that this elder son has is not to be ashamed of those his father calls sons. This, I think, is the heart of the Christian life. Will I be ashamed of those people God calls his own? Will I demand to stay outside and not go into the party? Will I say, this isn't right, this isn't the way things should be? Or will I realize that God's mercy triumphs over judgment and that this is right, this is what God has been working for all along, to get the whole family in the house? So I I end with this point, and then, then Ed is going to come and sing. One thing haunts me about this parable, I mean, there's a lot of detail here, but one thing in particular that haunts me, and that is that the prodigal doesn't come out for his brother. Now think about it. This prodigal has gone away. He's come home, and he's talked about his father, and he's talked to his father, But now he's gone right into the party and he's celebrating and he still doesn't understand. This isn't just about my relationship to the Father. This is about my relationship to you. Jesus doesn't say everything is about loving God. It's loving God and loving neighbor. It's easy to relate to the Father. The Father's lavishing you. But can you relate to the elder brother who despises you? Can you leave your own party to go back outside and say, brother, please come in? This, I think, is where we are. This is is the Lenten season. There's a party going on right there. But the brothers should be outside reconciling. The tragedy is one brother is outside refusing to go in and the other one's inside refusing to come out. And the father's right between them trying to tell both of them, this is your brother. That's the state of the world right now. There are people in the party refusing to come out and people outside the party refusing to go in. We're pointing fingers across the line saying we we all think we have the same relationship to the father but we don't have the same relationship to each other. But here's the thing about our father, he's not gonna let that stand. He's not just gonna let the party go on with one brother outside. And we shouldn't either. Part of living in Lent is living knowing that we have to be outside. Even though the party's right there, we can't go into that party until everybody's free. Not just our brother, but what about that slave that's outside? He should be in the party too. There shouldn't be anybody out here. When the party, when the party is happening, we all should be in there. And part of being leaning into the Lenten season is, is saying, God, I don't want to be in the party until everybody can. I, I don't want to rejoice until everybody can.